Would you please join me as we stand together for the reading of God's Word and turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible with you today, we would invite you to use one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you, and you'll find this morning's text on page 7 and 8. As we continue on in our series of sermons through this first book of the Bible, the book of beginnings, we come today to what very much is a climax in the story, and we're only barely 11 chapters in. People have traditionally divided the book of Genesis into two major sections. Chapters 1 through 11 are primeval history. Chapters 12 through 50 are patriarchal history, and we come today to what one scholar calls the fruitless climax of primeval history. I'm not so sure it's a fruitless climax, to be honest, but I would totally agree that it is a climax of sorts that we come to this morning as we're going to look at all of chapter 10 and the first nine verses of chapter 11. Because we're going to spend most of our time in the first nine verses of chapter 11, let me just read those for us, pray for our time, and then we will begin. So let us hear now as God speaks to us through his word. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so they may not understand one another's speech." So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together once again. Father, we do pray for your blessing, for your benediction, for your illumination to fall upon us as we come to your word this morning. Uh, We pray that the Spirit would move among us and speak to us through your word that we might be able to truly say, surely the Lord is in this place. So help us to hear with eagerness, for me to preach with faithfulness, As a dying man unto dying people, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, There is an unfinished city in the desert of Arizona. It was a city whose construction began in the 1960s. It was meant to be a monument to human innovation as its Italian architect by the name of Paolo Soleri was going to build a city that was entirely dependent on human resources for its ongoing survival, for its ongoing fruitfulness. And it was supposed to be a city that was going to indeed be innovative and inventive, and in many ways it was this kind of groundbreaking architectural experiment, but a city that was meant to house thousands of people today, 
still only houses a couple of dozen people. As Soleri began to put forth his argument for why he was going to build the city that he was going to build, he did so in a book that was titled, The City in the Image of Man. And now, almost 60 years on from its beginning, the city lies incomplete in the desert. Soleri has died, and there seems to be no hope whatsoever of his ambition ever coming to true fruition. And the reason I tell you that, of course, is we come to another story of another unfulfilled city this morning. It's not a story about a tower. It's a story about a city that's incomplete. It's a story that also is likewise about a city that is made in the image of man. Likewise, it's a story about human ambition and its fruitlessness in the face of a sovereign king. And in many ways, what we see this morning is a story here at the Tower of Babel, the Table of Nations, that is the story of every human heart ever since. And so we left off last week at the end of chapter 9, and it was our last glimpse into this great man named Noah, this righteous and blameless man before the world who found grace with God. And the last words we heard from Noah was, in part, a prophetic cursing on one of his grandsons, Canaan, and blessings upon the Lord that were meant to fall upon his two other sons' families, Japheth and Shem. And you might remember that Noah came forth from the new creation after the flood as something like a second Adam. Just as the first Adam heard this command, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, so did Noah and his sons, if you look back to chapter 9, verse 1, receive the same mandate, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. But what we find out today is that mankind didn't want to fill the earth. They wanted to stay in one place. So God decided he was going to fill the earth in his own sovereign providential power. And that really is, if you noticed, even as I read particularly the end of our text in chapter 11, the emphasis, the dispersal of people across all of the earth. This is a text that's answering for us in part, kids, how it is that so many different kinds of people live all over the earth. But more importantly, it's giving us a truth about the one who is the protagonist of this story in Genesis about God himself, about Yahweh, and it's this glorious doctrine that he is sovereign over all nations, that God reigns sovereign over every single people, tribe, and tongue. So kids, you might want to remember here from the outset as we think of God's sovereignty along the way this morning, what does it mean that God is sovereign? Well, it means that God is in charge, yes, But even more foundationally and broadly, it means that God is in control of everything and everyone. This is a story meant to tell us this morning that there's not a single nation that exists outside of his control. There's not a single people group that's outside of his authority. There's not a single tongue that belongs outside of his great and glorious word. He is sovereign over all nations. And so the text comes to us, doesn't it, if you glance down once again in two simple parts that are relatively well known in studies of Genesis. Chapter 10 is the table of nations. Verse 1 through 9 of chapter 11 is the tower of Babel. So we'll just walk through it in two parts. First we'll see God fill the earth, and then we'll see man fortify a city. So God fills the earth in chapter 10. Earlier this week, I was listening to a podcast that I check in 
on with every so often. It had been a while since I had listened to anything, and I saw in the recent episodes that there was an episode that was titled, The Boring Parts of the Bible. So you kind of cue in, all right, what do you have in mind, dear brothers in the ministry, the boring parts of the Bible? And sure enough, you know, they began to talk about what is so common the Christian experience, isn't it? You begin the year walking through a Bible reading plan, but soon enough you get to the book of Leviticus and you begin to lose steam. Or maybe even before that, you get to the chapters in Exodus that seem to be little more than this just detailed assembly guide for how to construct the tabernacle. Or maybe even before that, you get your way through a few chapters in Genesis and you run into these genealogies, these lists of families, these lists of clans, these lists of ancestors that seemingly every Christian was, what do I do with a genealogy for my spiritual prophet? Well, we've seen genealogies already a couple times in the book of Genesis, and we get to one of the more famous ones here in chapter 10. And among the different things we could say, there are three at least central things that you need to know about this table of nations as God is filling the earth. The first of which is the totality of nations. You know, kids, if you were looking for something to do later on today, or parents, if you were looking for an exercise to entrust to your child to occupy their attention for some time later on this afternoon, you could count up, children, the, the number of nations in chapter 10. There's quite a few, and if you've counted right, you'll get 70 nations that are listed out in chapter 10, which is very much in Jewish culture a number of completions a number of fulfillment telling us that God has filled the entire earth with all the nations. And you can kind of see it punctuated with phrases in chapter 10. If you just look down at verse 5, then you look down at verse 20, verse 31, there's this punctuating remark at the end of each one of these three lists. For example, verse 20, these are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. It's building up to such a point to notice verse 32. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. The idea here is, just as every person has a father named Adam, all nations have a father named Noah. You're meant to see the totality of the nations. Secondly, you're meant to see the mighty man named Nimrod, because amidst all the nations, all the people, all the descendants, notice how there's a a unique zoomed-in focus on this man named Nimrod. Look at verse 8 and 9. Cush fathered Nimrod. If you've followed along, Cush is the grandson of Noah. So Nimrod is the great-grandson of Noah, one of them. Cush fathered Nimrod, and he was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. You can't miss, can you, this threefold repetition of how mighty Nimrod was. And you remember the last time we heard in the book of Genesis a story of mighty men. Should call to our attention something of an ominous tone, of a, of a concerning note in the Genesis atmosphere of God's revelation. You might remember back to the beginning of chapter 6. We were told at a time when sin was permeating the earth, when the earth was full of evil and the earth was full of violence. These were the days in which the mighty men walked upon the earth. And so there's a question you might notice even from verse 9. Oh, what kind of man was 
Nimrod. Was he a good one or was he a bad one? He's mighty, this mighty man before the Lord. Because it says he's a mighty man before the Lord. So many people think, well, that's just a signal. He's good. He's godly. He's, he's exuding strength and feats of power on behalf of God. I don't think that's exactly what we're meant to see. The better idea of the translation is he flaunted his might openly before the Lord. And it's an idea that you need to know about Nimrod for two other reasons. Why he was this evil power present at this time in the world. His name, first of all, means let us rebel. Secondly, notice the cities he built. Just look at verse 10 and 11. The beginning of Nimrod's kingdom was what? Babel, Erech. Akkad, Kalna, and the land of Shinar. And from that land, where did he go? Into Assyria and built Nineveh. Do you remember Assyria and Nineveh's relationship to God's covenant people? Oppression, violence, even used as a tool of Yahweh to cart off the northern kingdom into exile. These were Nimrod's cities, Nimrod's kingdoms striking once again this kind of threatening note here in the table of nations nimrod was a man that was mighty before the lord and full of power also you want to see thirdly the centrality of shim because if you just notice how moses works about the genealogies this table of nations verse two we get information about the sons of japheth Verse 6, information about the sons of Ham. Then verse 21, information about the sons of Shem. Now students, that should strike you as odd that Shem is listed last. Does anyone know why? Shem was the firstborn. You would have every reason to expect Shem would thus be listed first in the table of nations. But he's listed last for emphasis, for significance, for importance. If you just turn the page over, maybe in your Bibles, you see Shem and his genealogy shows up again in verse 10, all the way through the end. I'm sorry, chapter 11, verse 10, all the way through the end, verse 32 of chapter 11, culminating with this man of promise, this man of faith, who comes from the line of Shem, Abram. It's therefore giving us reason why, if you turn later on today to Luke chapter 3 in the genealogy of Jesus, Shem shows up. There's something happening with unique, redemptive, historical significance in Shem's family is preparing us for what we're getting ready to see, Lord willing, next week in Genesis chapter 12. So when you look at the table of nations as God is filling the earth, you want to see it's communicating to us, among other things, at least these three important truths, the totality of nations, this threatening note with the mighty man named Nimrod, and also the centrality of Shem, which we'll come back to in a few minutes. So God fills the earth, and in verse, ele- uh, verse 1 through 9 of chapter 11, we see that man fortifies a city. I have a friend who is something of a guru in C.S. Lewis studies. He gets asked questions all the time about his views of particular works of C.S. Lewis. And one of the tiffs and tussles that he often finds himself in is related to the debate and discussion about which book in the Chronicles of Narnia series you should read first. And some of you who know anything about this ongoing tiff and tussle know why it exists. Because the first book C.S. Lewis wrote was The Lion, the Rich, and the Wardrobe. The sixth book he wrote is called The Magician's Nephew, but The Magician's Nephew precedes The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in time, and so people who think you need to read it chronologically would say you have to start with book six before you get to book one. 
Because book six is the origin story, and if you don't read it that way, you're going to get it all out of sequence. But it's true, isn't it? Even in popular level culture today with many of our movies, origin stories tend to come after Maybe a story that follows it later on in sequence. And if you know anything about Genesis 10 and 11, we've gotten all out of whack, at least as chronology and sequencing works here at the beginning of chapter 11. Because you'll notice, if you just kind of scan your eyes again through chapter 10, we have this idea, don't we, by the end of the chapter, that all the nations are spread abroad across all of the earth. But then if you just glance down at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 11, we have one people in one place. You'll see even verse 5, right, of chapter 10. These nations, these families that descend from Japheth, they all have their own language. But then verse 1 of chapter 11 speaks of literally one lip belonging to the people. They had one language, the same words. And so what we're getting in chapter 11 is an origin story. How is it that the world came to be full of different nations? It's like we've gone back in time with a flashback. Because Moses and Yahweh wants us to understand how exactly it is that the world is full of different peoples speaking different languages. And it all relates to mankind trying to fortify a city. So look again at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now remember, we just highlighted him. Who was this mighty man building a kingdom in Shinar? Nimrod. So a Jewish tradition would tell you that Nimrod is the man in charge, the administrator, the leader, the president of the Babel Tower building experiment soon to come. And student, what you want to, students, what you're going to want to pay attention to in the next few verses is the threefold repetition of this command, come. It lies in the center of the passage, and it's altogether ironic if you understand it rightly. And it comes for the first two times, notice in verse 3 and 4. We're told, they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. You know, what's interesting is that many people think, I'm not smart enough to know if it's true, I'm just telling you what they think, that this was the invention of brick building. Now, this was a place that didn't have any stone. Now, what are they going to do to build this great tower that is soon to come? Well, they need to invent this system of building such towers without stones. And so they come with brick building, and it's important for us to note technological innovation relied upon by human powers in order to further their own renown and reputation is nothing new in the world today. The second emphasis of come, notice verse 4, and they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Now, sometimes I think this story can be told in such a way that we believe this ancient people thought they could actually build a tower up to heaven. That's not what's going on here. It's just an ancient way of talking, we're going to build a very tall tower. The tallest one in the land, the most prominent one in the land, in order why? That we might get a name for ourselves. Renown, fame, reputation. We will be seen as the strong and mighty citizens. And getting a name for oneself isn't an ancient struggle that is far gone in our culture today, is it? 
By that I mean it's still around people striving to get a name for themselves. I wonder if you might be trying to get a name for yourself today. Let me get a name through my career. Let me get a name through my children. Let me get a name through my body. Let me get a name through my education. Let me get a name through my money. Let me get a name through my academic or athletic achievements. Some of you that are pursuing ministry might know the threat that even comes to many gospel ministers on this point. Many people jumping into the ministry, and if you were able to get underneath them and inside them, you would discover, let me get a name as I preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Might you be trying to get a name for yourself today? And what's fascinating about this story to me, at least in many churches today and Christians' experiences, they forget the reason why the tower and city were meant to be built. Do you see the end of verse 4? Let us build a city and a tower. Let's make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. God's command to many generations before was direct, and it was clear, and it was obvious. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. But here we have a picture of a people who aren't passionate about obeying God. They're passionate about disobeying God. Lest we fill the earth, we want to all stay in one place. And so you might wonder, what is it about this city, what is it about this tower that's going to let them stay in one place lest they be dispersed? You know, it could be just a desire for protection. It could be simply a desire for comfort. Oh, but if you look, glance down at verse 4 again, you'll see that it's intimately linked with a desire for a name lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The right thing, I think, for us to see here is that there was a fear with these original citizens of obscurity. There were things that they could achieve together that they couldn't achieve apart. There were things that they could achieve together within one city. There were things they could not achieve if they were scattered throughout all the earth. There was a desire for reputation that could only come if they stayed together. Have you ever wondered why it is that the New Testament says that the sanctified Christian's prayer is that we would live a godly and quiet life? Obscurity is not something that sinful, prideful people tend to pursue, is it? But as Paul tells Timothy to pray for things in the church, he says, pray that we might live a godly and quiet life that's dignified in every way. So, of course, they're flouting God's direct command here. And so the center point in the text, notice, comes in verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. What they would have been building, technically speaking, was a Mesopotamian ziggurat. That's just this kind of like circular tower that's spiraling up that was understood in the ancient Near Eastern culture as being something like a descending staircase for the gods. It was this artificial mountain because in the ancient culture, mountains were where the divines and the gods met with each other. And here it is, these people saying, we're going to build this artificial mountain to show that we have this great name for ourselves, but surely then there's this desire to have a meeting place with whatever gods they may have been worshiping at the given time. And the great irony, even in this passage, is it's so tiny that the transcendent and tremendous God has to come down just to look at it, just to see it. And notice what he says in verse 6. Behold, they are one people, 
and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. It's worth lingering a bit on this verse because it might appear somewhat confusing at first. What is God exactly saying there? We have to do something about this. I have to do something about this because now the people will be able to do anything they want to do. Nothing will be impossible with them with this one language. So, of course, there's different ideas of what it may be. It may be God recognizing, just as it so happened in Genesis chapter 6 and the generations before, that humanity was approaching the place of being so far gone into their collective apostasy that God was going to have to wipe them away from the face of the earth. Maybe not with a flood, but maybe some other means of judgment. And he meant to scatter them before they got to that place. Or I think what's more likely is the emphasis here on one language is that the Lord is recognizing these people are relying upon their language in order to achieve any sinful means that they so desire to pursue, to follow any sort of sinful dreams to a place of fullness of ambition. And before that can happen, he decides to confuse them. He decides to scatter them. And what you need to recognize is God has already been doing this throughout Genesis, even in his judgment. It's not just punitive, it's also preventative. You remember, judgment fell upon Adam, but God still covered and preserved him afterwards. Judgment fell upon Cain, but what did God do? Protected him afterwards. Here is a sinful people that he is going to judge, but nonetheless he's preventing their collective apostasy, this idea that they will be so far gone into sin that they must suffer once again, a wiping away of all of their generations. So the irony, notice verse 7, come, let us go down. Almost the exact same language as come, let us go up and build a tower. Come, let us go down, God says. And if you know anything about the biblical story, when God comes down, it tends to be a terrifying thing. You might think later on in Israel's history, God comes down upon Mount Sinai to meet with this covenant people that he's just redeemed out of Egypt. And what happens? Everyone and everything trembles. And shakes because God has come down. The next place in Genesis that God comes down is at Sodom and Gomorrah. And when he comes down, what he leaves in his wake is the smell of sulfur and the heat of burning fire. When God comes down, it tends to be a terrifying thing. Should the Lord come down, if you will, to see what you are building with your life, what would he find today? Notice verse 7, he says, come down, I'm sorry, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so they may not understand one another's speech. So what you need to see here is this confusion of languages at Babel isn't merely judgment, it's also a divine instrument. It's the means by which God is going to achieve the purpose that he set out so many generations before to fill the earth. He's going to scatter the people abroad because he means to fill the earth with people. And even notice the entire earth is emphasized. Verse 8 and 9, the Lord dispersed them there over the face of all the earth. And they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, which sounds like the Hebrew word for confusion. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. 
And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. God is sovereign over all peoples. God even tends to exercise His sovereignty with surprising providence, even sometimes working through the sinful actions of humanity to bring about His eternal decrees. He's sovereign over all the nations as He disperses now the nations to the ends of the earth. I grew up in a family that loves to sing. Sometimes I feel like the only things I've ever learned came through a song. You know, we learned our Bible books by singing a song. We learned our Texas history by singing a song. You might ask me later on today to sing for you the Ballad of the Alamo. I learned that when I was in fourth grade and still remember it today. We learn truth about God by singing songs. That in the midst of whatever sufferings and sorrows that life may bring, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. I do hope you like to sing. God's people have always been a singing people throughout history. The nation of Israel would sing songs in order they might know God's mighty works in redemption. They might recount to the coming generation His acts of majesty and mercy. And one of the most famous songs in all of Israel's history is the song of Moses. It comes in Deuteronomy chapter 32. It's just before this great deliverer of God's people dies that God puts a song in Moses' mouth that the generations were to sing in the coming centuries Ultimately, it was going to be a song of judgment and accountability against God's people. But after the first few stanzas in Deuteronomy 32 call attention and reasons for adoration to God, it begins to recount Israel's history. And the first historical event mentioned, sung throughout the ages, was the story of Babel. Listen to verse 8. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance and when He divided mankind at Babel, He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Verse 9, But the Lord's portion is His people, Jacob His allotted heritage. Now what does that have to do with Genesis 11? Well, it tells us that as God is moving the nations around in the world, and part of the reason He is doing that is because He's moving His people into place. This isn't just a scene of a sovereign God who reigns over the nations in judgment. It's also the story of a sovereign God who's selecting for Himself a people, a nation, a chosen covenant family as He scatters the rest abroad, and that's exactly where the story of Genesis is about to go, isn't it? The man of faith, the man of promise, the chosen one, Abraham, getting ready to take the scene. And so as we begin to close, what I want to try to tease out a little bit more here at the end is a few more threads on this sovereignty of God in our passage, the first of which is no doubt the primary application for our lives and implication is that the sovereign God judges the proud. You can build a tower to get a great name and inevitably you will get a bad name as a result. Because they wanted a name, didn't they, in verse 4. And do you see the divine irony, even the ridicule of sorts? They got a name, didn't they, in verse 9. It's just a name of incompletion. It's a name of confusion. It's a name of Babel. It's a name that eventually became Babylon. 
synonymous with the city, with the people who would forever oppress God's people. So significant in their evil and sin is the people of Babylon. They show up even throughout the book of Revelation. An angel comes and sings a song of woe and judgment and warning upon Babylon because they finally fall according to Revelation chapter 18. God judges the proud. Maybe somewhat surprisingly in this text, he mocks the proud. You want a name? I'll give you one. Ishna's not the one that you wanted. And we, we should make individual applications of that to our own hearts, but recognize this is a nation that has sinned against God. We must think in corporate categories, oftentimes in Scripture. A nation that desires to build this urban utopian society through technological innovation is a nation relying on its own strength, wisdom, and ability. It's a nation that historically invites God's judgment eventually. Church denominations can do the same. Families can do the same. God judges the proud. Sovereign God over all nations judges the proud. Secondly and finally, and we'll just camp a little bit more here at the end, sovereign God fulfills His purposes. Our sovereign God fulfills His purposes. What He decrees, He will achieve. It's undeniable and unstoppable. What he decrees, he will achieve. No man can thwart God's promise. No power can stop God's purpose. And for those of you in here this morning who are in Christ, this is one of the sweetest comforts you can ever know. God is unstoppable in his sovereign kindness and goodness. For surely, someone in here today, maybe many of you in here today, are in the midst of a valley of despair and discouragement. Life's sorrows seem to be swallowing up life's joys. Enemies seem to be ruling over you, crushing your spirit. And yet God has promised His presence and mercy and goodness to you. And such promises are unstoppable in their sovereign fulfillment. But God's unstoppable sovereignty is much more terrifying to any of you who are outside of Christ today. You cannot remain in unbelief and stand against God in disobedience and unrepentance and think that you will actually win in the end. The truth of human history, which we're going to see in just a minute, is that God is going to come down again at the end of all things. And the question for you is, will His coming down be one of a coming down in judgment? or coming down in salvation. You know, if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, you know exactly what's going on as we turn the page, Lord willing, next week to chapter 12 when God calls Abram to himself. He's giving Abram everything the people at Babel wanted. And it's Abram's to lay hold of by faith. You notice they didn't want to be dispersed across the whole earth because they wanted a land, if you just look at chapter 12, verse 1. What does he say right away to Abram? Leave your home and go to the land I'm going to show you. They wanted a great name for themselves. What does he say to Abram in chapter 12, verse 2? I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. As through this chosen line of Shem, the promised one of Abraham, 
the long-expected seed, Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate fulfillment of Abraham, that God is now actually going to bring blessing upon all nations. Because, of course, God desired to fill the earth with all nations, not so that he would judge them. He desired to fill the earth with all people so that he might be a blessing unto them. But that blessing now is going to come through one nation. It's going to come through the nation called Israel. It's going to come through the seed of Abraham called Jesus Christ, who one day would what? Come down and begin to redeem a people, to unite all things in himself, the New Testament says. And how does he begin to do it? Well, of course, he obeys in every place that we have fallen short. He dies as the perfect penalty and sacrifice there on the cross. He rises again three days later. He ascends into heaven. And what does he do at the day of Pentecost? He pours out his spirit. And do you remember what Acts 2 says? There were men from every nation under heaven gathered together. And they hear the gospel as though it came from one lip. Reversing the curse of Babel. Healing the nations in his own grace. And not just that, of course, anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in this Savior is looking for a city to come. A city that's not going to be built up to heaven, is it? But it's a city that's going to come down from heaven at the end of all things. The city of the new Jerusalem in which we will see the king in his beauty. Reunited once and for all as one people Again. So in so many ways, the Bible is a tale of two cities. Babylon and Jerusalem. I wonder in which city you belong. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you are a God who is merciful and gracious Thank you that you are long-suffering in your kindness towards sinful people such as us. We praise you for Jesus Christ, who is our life, who is our all. We thank you that he has redeemed the nations unto himself and that he is continuing to ransom and redeem and renew a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation so that the heavenly host might sing your praise forever and ever with one tongue together in the new heavens and the new earth. Bring us, we pray, into your family. Help us to look for that city without foundations, seeking its builder, its author, its perfecter, Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.